1: Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Andrew Harrison, or as I was renamed by a shaman in the Glastonbury Stone Circle, Aslam Hailstorm the On today's show, <laughs> <My> hanged... <God>. <laughs> <laughs> on today's show, Hangdog Hancock in the dock. Taking some time away from ranking chocolate bars on TikTok, the former health secretary faces the COVID inquiry. Plus, after the shortest conflict since the Emu War of 1932, look it up. Russia is taking away the Wagner Group's toys. The rebellion's over, but a Putin's problems just beginning? I'll be taking the political temperature of the Glastonbury Festival with Miaza Fambole, And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, old man yells at housing markets. A random civilian OAP makes headlines across the country for saying that young people need to stop whinging and work harder to pay their mortgages. Why are the papers talking to one old guy in the street as if he's some sort of authority figure? And of course, there will be a rare guest appearance of Dave Grohl at the end of the show. But first, let's meet the panel. Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Hello, Andrew. So the Home Office has just released uh, its data on the Rwanda plan, saying it's going to cost £169,000 per person uh, to remove asylum seekers to Rwanda. That's an estimated £63,000 more than it would cost to just relocate them here in the UK. Is this going to fall apart, not because it's so cruel, but because it's so expensive?
2: I... Don't think it will actually, because at the moment they've not removed anyone, and presumably they've already spent lots of money on it. Mm. So the, the sort of per unit cost uh, is is amazingly high, and I and I think it comes back to the point that this isn't a serious plan to um, whether you agree with it or not. It's not a serious plan to deal with large numbers of migrants in this country. It's a serious plan to look like you hate migrants. And in that sense, it's sending a very clear message. It's a plan that looks like a plan.
1: Yes. Sounds like a plan, but doesn't, but isn't. Marie LeConte is a columnist and an author of the Bible of Parliamentary Gossip, Haven't You Heard? And also Escape, the Bible for Chronically Online Millennials. Hello, Marie. Hello. So uh, it has been revealed this week that Rishi Sunak has been using a pen with erasable ink. For some years now, the Pilot 5 is apparently ideal for those learning to write with ink mm-hmm. because if you make a mistake, the ink is using standard ink eradicators. What's going on? Is Rishi just like <laughs> learning how to write with ink now? <laughs> getting it all over his trousers?
3: The thing is that it, so I read that story, and I know it's actually a very serious story, but I really struggle to again sort of give it, you know, the, sort of the attention it deserves because it feels very teenagey. That like it feels yeah. like he's using that because in every single meeting he's like, you know, sort of like doodling the name of his crush, and he doesn't want anyone to see, it, and, and yeah. then erasing it. No, exactly. Whenever his crush actually is holding hands with someone else, and he furiously erases it. But no, I mean, obviously, it, it is a big problem for transparency, because my guess. Um, well, is literally that thinking, he could but, be yeah, erased. <laughs> Fine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's again, I know I should take it seriously because it is an issue. And I think future historians really do need stuff like, you know, the prime minister's notes. Um, but it's also just quite funny.
1: I just imagine like Rishi with like my first secret agent kiss, you know, like <laughs> writing things in lemon juice, like Nadine Dorries can have a peerage. Oh, no, she can't. Scrub, <laughs> scroll, scroll, it's gone. It's
3: like Dipping stuff in tea. So it looks very old and fancy. Yeah. Like burning the corners of letters. All
1: that kind of stuff. <laughs> yes. We'll have a long discussion about this later. Back on the podcast this week is Deputy Political Editor of the New Statesman, Rachel Weymouth. How are you doing, Rachel? Hello. So uh in a piece of catnip for our listeners, <laughs> you've written this week that Labour's Remainers are getting organised. They're expecting that Keir Starmer is eventually going to phase out his irksome Make Brexit Work slogan, even if he's not quite ready to get back into the single lock in the customs union. What is happening here? And is do you think things are likely to eventuate, as they say?
4: I think Keir Starmer would love to forget the fact that at least 70% of Labour members are pro-Remain and are very, very Brexit sceptical. What they're trying to do at the moment is get some amendments to um, some data that's before the National Policy Forum to try and put pressure on the leadership to change position in some way. They want... Time to stop using "make Brexit work" and change it to you know here's how I would do something about Boris Johnson's deal. You know the the deal is bad. Fix they're, the deal. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Fix the deal. Move move on in some way. Um, they want a number of things. Whether they're going to get them is is entirely different matter. Um, they want, for example, a trade a trade body that would be similar to, you know, a trade monitoring organisation, like an OBR for trade, mm. that would kind of mark the government's homework. They'd also like access to the single market in some way. They want alignment on rights and standards. They're very, very, very hopeful of some kind of intervention from Keir Starmer um, sometime in the autumn. But as one kind of said to me, um, we don't know whether that's going to actually happen or if we're just being led up the garden path.
1: Mm. What's your What's your sort of gut feeling? <laughs> um,
4: I think there may be some movement in the autumn, but um, um, that it, you get to a point, don't you, in, in politics where you being wobbly, you being being seen to flip flop in somewhere becomes a problem in and of itself. Yeah. So it's whether it's whether Keir Starmer's team believes it's got the bandwidth to kind of move or not.
1: I'm well, sure we'll never return to this subject ever again. On the <laughs> no, <laughs> those listeners aren't totally obsessed. Before we start, two little bits of news. This week we're putting out episode 1000 of The Bunker. Our daily sibling podcast has hit the millennium. And uh, to mark this as a special panel edition coming out on Friday the 30th of June. That's today if you're a general population listener, tomorrow if you're a Patreon. And if you don't already listen to The Bunker, it is a great place to start. Find The Bunker edition 1000 on your favourite app. And for fans of in-person human entertainment, there's an Origin Story live show in London on Tuesday the 11th of July at 21 Soho, which is right near Tottenham Court Road. Dorian Linsky and some guy called Ian Dunst, who's he, will be defining more political concepts live on stage without a net. Go to 21-soho.com. Tickets are going fast. The COVID inquiry continues to deliver a parade of faces from the past, like when Doctor Who is about to regenerate and he's surrounded by taunting visions of his past enemies. This week, ooh, it's Matt Hancock appearing before the inquiry for the first but probably not the last time. It was only covering the government's preparation for the pandemic in this session, so some of the thornier issues will have to wait until the autumn. In his cross-examination, Hancock largely laid the blame on poor planning before his time as health secretary. Preparations were completely wrong, and the government concentrated on planning for consequences, not preventing a pandemic in the first place. Abject apologies were not enough for bereaved families who turned their backs on him as he tried to explain himself. Um, Marie, Matt Hancock says he's emotionally committed to the inquiry. Do we believe him, considering what he's done with things that he was emotionally committed to in the past?
3: It's so I I find Matt Hancock to be a complicated topic because for quite a long time, so back when he was sort of, you know, cabinet office uh, minister and digital um, culture minister, I was actually quite a big defender. And I think a lot of Tories, even at the time, really loathed him. And I I kind of I would say, well, no, actually, I think he's changed an, an interesting chap and he seems to really care about what he does. Um, And and then we we all know how that went. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, so again, my first instinct here would have been to say, actually, maybe we should cut him some slack. Maybe he is being entirely earnest. But again, you know, fool me once, (laughs) Matt Hancock.
1: (laughs) I mean, we do love to kick him, but the apologies were quite comprehensive and, and like I say, abject. I bear responsibility for all the things that happened, not only in my department, but also the agencies that reported to me as Secretary of State. Should we cut a bit of slack? Is he properly taking it on the chin or is is that not the full story? Yes,
3: well, I... So I think the thing is that Matt Hancock was probably the better Secretary of State during the pandemic. Of you know the ones who held briefs like directly, sort of surrounding uh, COVID nineteen. But the problem is that is quite a low bar. It's probably um, saying who's the
1: most competent of the three Stooges. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it, it's not, not that, yes. Um, so, yes, again, I mean, perhaps, I, I think, again, basically in the context, I think, of the government that was, you know, kind of there at the time, he is definitely, I think, the one who genuinely, I think, worked very hard and tried his best. But um, in, you know, outside of that very specific context, I do think that he did clearly make some mistakes and apologies. And he really take you so far, I
1: suppose. He's, he's saying that uh, the main flaw in the plan was the focus was the outcome, not the prevention. And that we might need wider, earlier and more stringent lockdowns in future. But didn't the behaviour of this government pretty much destroy any support? Well, not destroy popular support. It made it very, very hard for a government to be able to say you need to observe, um, you know, isolation and so forth. When we are now the other side of seeing these very same people enjoying themselves.
3: Oh, absolutely. But then I think also more widely, I did find those comments frustrating because actually since then, and I don't think you need to be a sort of anti-lockdown nutter to find that compelling. But there's been a lot of evidence on actually how harmful lockdown was for people's mental health, for kids' education, for, you know, lots of people at risk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is a complicated picture. And I think even lockdown in the form that we had uh, was only the better of two evils. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, no, I, I, I don't, take kindly I think to Matt Hancock saying we should have locked down even harder and it's like no I probably would have topped myself Um, but no so I'm not I don't know that 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 felt like a weird thing to say to me because also I don't believe there's a constituency there like his party has gone full anti-lockdown I don't really see Labour ever going you know we should have locked down even harder so it's not it it, yeah it just struck me as quite odd.
1: Rachel how do you think he came out of it?
4: It's that's an interesting question isn't it because it, it kind of speaks to how he's approached Everything he's done since the the end of the pandemic, really, he's kind of treated it like a like a PR operation from kind of day one. You know, I mean, before the inquiry even started, he had a book out, "Pandemic Diaries." Mm-hmm. You know, with and, and regardless on regardless of how he feels, he may have conducted himself as Secretary of State. There's the you know he needs to think about how the families who've lost lost loved ones are going to going to feel about something like that. So that's like kind of the starting starting blocks for him, um, and then. He's, then he went on. I'm a celebrity, you know. Again, yeah. that was kind of like in the eyes yeah, of many people, is just going to be seen as highly inconsiderate. So I think that's, you know, it kind of it makes you doubt his sincerity when he comes out with. It's kind of like he's used a lot of his credit already. Yeah. And if he wanted to have a moment where he ha- was going to be really contrite, he was going to name all of his mistakes. He needed to behave differently before before he came to before he came to the hearing. And um, but the thing that kind of struck me is being like the biggest bit of news that came out of um, the hearing was that um, when the p- pandemic hit, they had no idea where where all vulnerable, pe- vulnerable people were, yeah, you know yeah. like you know just how how care homes operate and how underfunded they were um so that it made, that really affected how they were able to respond in the first place,
1: well, everybody's been pointing out that like care homes are registered, all you need to do is go on the register and like get a calculator, <laughs> and then you'll know roughly how many, but to say we're throwing a protective this is the quote of we're throwing a protective ring around care homes when you don't even know how many people are in them yeah is kind of, it shows a sort of glibness uh, yeah. that is pretty much the hallmark of yeah, that. Yeah, and it, again, that
4: goes to like, just makes you doubt his sincerity, really.
1: Again, yeah. yeah, I mean, what you're saying about uh, sincerity as well, he, he does appear to be the world champion at being incapable of reading a room. He's like, <laughs> he's is, he is room blind.
4: Yeah, and I mean, I mean, just the reaction of the families is the thing that, that I think everyone will remember when they look back on the hearing yesterday, turning their back on him, that kind of. Well, would, would they have done that had he behaved differently since the yeah. pandemic? Well, well, one of sure the most visceral
1: would. moments was the widow of one man who died in a care home. Uh, Laurel Leg King told journalists, care homes became charnel houses because there was no testing, there was insufficient PPE. And most disastrously, it's because they discharged people from hospitals without testing them. And, you know, this is kind of pretty much the opposite of what the government claimed it had done.
4: Absolutely, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Um, it also emerged, one of the kind of, news aspects that emerged, was that the NHS had been hours away from running out of medicine for ICUs, like completely. And Hancock claims they were saved by preparations that had been made for a no-deal Brexit. Do you think he might be sort of inadvertently showing us how bad a no-deal Brexit could have been?
4: Well, I think it's, it's, again, that struck me as like quite a political line to come out. Why did he need to bring the no-deal Brexit preparations mm. into it, really? Um, again, he it, it kind of felt like he was playing for an audience by bringing, yeah. by bringing such a controversial issue into, you know, really what's about response in terms of... How the NHS behaved. So I'm not sure why he brought Brexit into it at all.
1: It's a bit of a weird Brexit benefit, isn't it? it Brexit is great because it saved my government from the consequences of its own catastrophic failure. It is a bit of a bit of a stretch, isn't it? It kind of is, yeah. yeah. Arthur, you've looked at pandemics for Doomsday Watch. Uh, does what Matt Hancock said, and in fact the other stuff that's beginning
2: to emanate from the Cope inquiry, make you feel any safer? Uh, no, but I suppose um, we. You know, it won't be a century until the next big pandemic, sadly, hmm. but that means at least we've got a bit more up to date sort of information to go on. I mean, I think going back to this question about lockdowns, I think, it, you know, the, the public adherence to lockdowns, as everyone knows, was, was remarkable because of the lack, the, the lack of adherence was just in Westminster. But um, I think it will be hard next time because next time everyone will say, well, I bet they're all partying down in Downing Street. So why, why should I, you know, shut myself away? Yeah, when, it, when in fact it will most likely be an extremely abstemious Starmer well, 10. Who knows? But I mean, I mean, I think that's the problem that, that the that, that they've they've set the sort of culture around pandemics. You know, up until up until twenty twenty, no one no one had experienced one, and and now we know what it feels like. Do you think the outcome of the pand- sort of taking the long view, the outcome of the of the pandemic
1: planning or lack thereof, might have something in common with all the other great big conservative projects, like big changes? with no thought for the consequence. You can, you know, right to buy, huge changes, no thought for the consequence. Brexit itself, Liz Truss's mini-budget, huge, huge, huge changes, and this sort of Darwinist belief that then the market or events or fate will kind of sort it out.
2: Well, of course, I mean, it goes to this whole... Um, sort of conservative mantra, particularly the sort of modern conservative mantra of the lean state, so lean mm. that it it actually doesn 't have sufficient medicines it doesn 't have enough doctors it, it isn 't prepared for these sorts of events um, and 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 basically there 's a lack of resilience in in our state which which is which is laid bare, and in a way, the nightmare scenario is is something like a pandemic coming on the heels of of a of a major sh- external shock like the sort of brexit. I don't see evidence that the, those people are kind of examining the sort of ideological basis that brought them here. They still seem to think the, the lean state is the way to be. Mm. Do we? Th- I mean, this inquiry is going to run till twenty twenty six, isn't it? It's, it's. You know,
1: they're not skimping on it. Yes, it's and not lean, unlike it, it, the state. Yes, it's, yes. it's, a, it's very, very fatty. Um, and it's early days to be talking about lessons learned. But mm. are we getting the sense that anybody might be seriously? paying attention to ways we need to reorganise our pandemic preparedness?
4: Um, I guess in some, I think it feels more like an examination of how austerities hit the state at the mm, minute. That's that's yeah. kind of where the narrative is right now. I mean, we're hopeful of getting some kind of interim report earlier than like 2026 that would inform kind of how the next government might approach such an issue. I mean, like when, you, when they're talking about how they're prepared for the pandemic last time, they had operations that Kind of examined how the NHS might respond to a flu flu epidemic, a pandemic rather. But there was the Treasury was never involved in any of the in any of the preparations last time, and that's been kind of like the most important aspect, arguably to some people, as to how we dealt with the pandemic. And they just weren't involved in any kind of you know drill operation last time. They, you know, so how we would think about it would probably be a more broad question, I think.
1: Didn't we see seen the last of Matt Hancock? <laughs> uh,
4: uh, I, I feel like we're never going to see the end of Matt Hancock. I feel like he'll
3: always yeah, find yes. an opportunity. Like, to yeah. You go to bed in twenty <laughs> years, like, you know, yeah, yeah. happy yeah. life, forgotten. Yeah. He's just out the window, he, that high. just like yeah, like kind of He'll be thing.
4: on the comeback of like supermarket yeah. sweep or something. Like, <laughs> like he will be, he will yeah. be somehow in the public eye.
1: Like a rubbish terminator. <laughs> I'm not the only one of our team who went to Glastonbury at the weekend. Producer Alex Rees is still covered in mud and glitter, and Dorian Linsky was last seen voguing at NYC Download at 4am on Monday. But the festival is something of a political bellwether too. Now that the o Jeremy Corbyn years have gone, how does the assembled left feel about the prospect of a Starmer government. I met up with one of our regulars, Miata Fanbole, economist and Labour's prospective candidate for Camberwell and Peckham, backstage at the left field, where she'd been talking with friend of the pod, John Harris, about the surprising renaissance of unions in British politics. So I'm backstage in the left field with a member of the Oh God What Now team and future MP, fingers crossed, touch one, 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 (laughs) Miata Fanbole. How are you, Miata? I'm great, really, really good, loving Glastonbury. So we've just had uh, one of John Harris's uh, very interesting sessions this one around unions and as you said you went in with your left hat on and came out with your <laughs> Labour hat on there was a little bit of kind of slightly aggressive questioning on the line of what's the difference between Labour and Tories anyway from a particular faction and the sense I got in the room was people were not at home to that at all there's an optimism about Labour Party at the moment
0: there really is and you know when you are having a session that's thinking about the state of the NHS, the state of our schools, the level of investment, how badly our teachers have been treated, and the idea that you could say there is any sort of comparison between the Labour Party and what the Conservatives have done, I think is completely for the birds. And the and the room felt it. Yeah. And so that kind of question that like you know vote them all in, they're the same. Well they're not and my point is judge labour on its record whether it was the creation of the nhs through to how labour saved the nhs in 1997 through that labour government so yeah i think people see that
1: yeah and the glastonbury festival does have a a kind of sometimes a bit of a bellwether function doesn't it because obviously you know years ago we had big old jeremy corbyn moments on the pyramid stage now I don't know, what's your sense so far, because you've been wandering around chatting to people in the fields. It's it's the kind of outside world feel that perhaps things are a bit more realist now, now that it looks like something is going to happen.
0: Yeah, so look, there is definitely a weariness because I think everyone is just tired. It's been a grinding 13 years, but there is a sense of change and hope, you know, for a lot of people, whether, you know, they're on the side that are sort of sceptical about what Labour were doing or whether they're sort of diehard activists, there's a sense that there is about to be a moment of change and out of that comes hope. And you get that, you get that sense of like, it's been a long road and we might now be at the end of it.
1: In the session that you just did then about, about unions, a, a big thing that emerged was that there is vast, vast popular support. And we've talked about it on the podcast for the strikes that, that, that are happening the the junior doctors just announced another strike. You know, I'm old enough to remember when the kind of natural reaction was that strikes are a massive inconvenience and more than that they're not part of the world of regular britain you know what i mean there's unions over there and there's regular britain over here and that's completely different right now there is widespread popular support amongst regular voters. tell us why you think that is
0: and for me that's been the power of the last year and i think it's three reasons i think firstly actually there is a lot of people, it resonates with people, people can see that our public services are crumbling and they can also feel the pressure on cost of living you know, if, if it's hard for me yeah. I get that a nurse that's having to use a food bank and then trying to look after people and prop up an NHS that's collapsing, I get it that they would want to strike, so I think there is people see it, I think the pandemic was a bit of a watershed moment for many of us, you know that idea of key workers got a particular salience, people who kept the country going at a point when, and risked their lives to that at a point that a lot of us were in our homes and then I think for me the final bit is I think the the, uh, trade union movement have been absolutely powerful at telling the story you know it, it, it it's been pitched. It's, this is not just about a pay rise for the nurses, or pay rise for the teachers, or pay rise for the rail workers. This is about solidarity. This is about us fighting for a system that's better. And I think people get that, and it's given people a lot of hope Yeah. at a time that there has felt to be despair. And actually, there have been wins through industrial action. We've seen wins, and I, you know, my hope is that that. Boost the trade union movements, and we've got lots of sectors that aren't unionised. And I hope people are looking across and saying, "Yeah, people have to club together, and through collective action, we can drive change." And you know, I think this feels like the most powerful the trade union movement has been. And I'm interested to see what they do with the Labour government and the sort of pressure they can apply. But well, you, you government.
1: did get uh, you got a very good question from the audience about what, uh, which we again we've kind of addressed it on the podcast in the past, but the Labour Party front bench has not. You know, it still worked while you're on the picket line, question, but more than that. Of Why has the party had to kind of maintain uh, an arm's length relationship with what's going on? And you gave a very good answer. Would you like to reprise it for the podcast?
0: Yeah, which is, look, I I get the frustration. I hear it all the time. And what I'd say is twofold. You know, there are a lot of backbenchers, a lot of parliamentary candidates that are on the picket line showing solidarity, going to talk to our teachers, our nurses and show that we are behind them. But the front bench, you know, their argument, I have a lot of sympathy for it, which is we want to show everyone we're a government and waiting and if we need to be on the other side of a negotiating table the idea that we are on the picket line showing our hand it just doesn't wash it doesn't stack up and particularly you know if you take the railways for example where actually you are a broker between the train operating company and the unions you need to be an honest broker but the quid pro quo of that distance is that actually a very empowered trade union movement can now say right We will exert that power and that distance in order to fight for the things that we want. I think that is absolutely right, and I think that's what the trade union movement ought to do. When did you get to the festival site? oh so uh i have been in the pyramids. i got to see lizzo up front which oh, is amazing right. yeah good, yes. guns and roses throwback oh, which, right. yeah, which is amazing i didn't have uh, you yeah. guns and roses <laughs> no, type well, of thing. no not really but yeah. i was waiting for the one song i knew that was never played until i left oh, no. um and then fat boy slim as well right. so yeah had a great time uh, last night
1: which is great well we did run into ed uh, Miliband up in the park i didn't know Cutting it am such some a raver i had a very good time um well, it's a beautiful day. It's been a beautiful festival so far. Usually, and this is the middle of Sunday, so I think we can put it down as it's going to work out quite well. I mean, usually when you hear some kind of strange, mad news story breaks, like I don't know, Michael Jackson dying or whatever, This year it was a, a very nearly a coup in Russia, which the way the kind of news is filtered in from outside has just made the outside world feel more surreal than the one here at the, uh, the festival. What are you looking forward to for your remaining time here? Elton, John. Elton.
0: I have to say, gonna be there, gonna be cutting some shapes. It's his last big gig. It's gonna be very emotional. I've
1: already seen one guy in full Elton Dodgers outfit, (laughs) a full spangled thing with uh, Elton John 1 on the back of the blue baseball cap. (laughs) So we are here at Clastonbury. We may come home and continue doing the podcast, but we, we may just stay here forever, mightn't we?
0: Get your glitter on. Absolutely.
1: That's a Farmbole, respective parliamentary candidate for Glastonbury Central, signing off. I'm going to buy you a cider now.
0: Oh, thanks for having me on. <laughs>
1: When you go to Glastonbury, you expect something weird to happen in the outside world, like when Michael Jackson died or the country voted to leave the EU. What you don't expect is civil war in Russia. Now, the Wagner Group are handing their heavy weapons back to the Russian military and their leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has fled to Belarus. On Tuesday, Putin said the mutineers had committed treason and fratricide and that Moscow's security services prevented a civil war as Wagner left the Russian city of Rostov-on-Don. Yet somehow, now, he seems to be saying it's all water under the bridge. Come on, we've all had a drink. Let's say no more about it. So how is the fallout settling and what does it all mean for the Ukraine war? Arthur, uh, on Tuesday, the Daily Star
2: warned Prigozhin to stay away from open windows. It's flippant, but it's quite good advice, isn't it? Yes, and the Daily Star were the ones who had the letters for Liz Truss, so they shouldn't be underestimated, They shouldn't, I think. yeah.
1: Surely, though, Putin is feeling far too vengeful to allow Prigozhin a quiet retirement in whatever the nice bit of Belarus is.
2: Yeah. Um I, I don't know what the sort of Minsk retirement communities are like. Um not having had the opportunity to sample them myself. Uh it it's hard to imagine that he'll he'll get a sort of a, a long and quiet time on the golf course.
1: So with a few days distance, can you see any more clearly what this rebellion has meant? Because we went in twenty four hours from Putin is gonna is going to be dead in the dirt to, uh, well, that was a bit of fuss about nothing.
2: Yeah. So I think, I think a few things. So I think at the outset, Prigozhin was acting out of desperation because his, his Wagner uh, force was going to be rolled up and people, people haven't really taken on board the significance of this. On the 10th of June, an order was put out that all the Wagner, so prior to the coup, all the Wagner soldiers had to enroll within the Ministry of Defence, basically. And that's the end of Prigozhin's business model. He was set to lose his, um, you know, to, to, to lose his means of livelihood. Arguably, and the fact that that order had been promulgated suggests that Putin had already lost patience with Prigozhin hmm. because, you know, clearly he'd he'd signed up to it. So I think I think there was that aspect to it. But the, what's really interesting is is the extent to which the Russian military, clearly elements of it, were on side with him. And as reporting the New York Times today Thursday, that uh, Suravikin, who's arguably the sort of seen as one of the most capable Russian generals was somehow coordinating with Prigozhin. So Putin has this nightmare. It's a bit like the the Stauffenberg plot against Hitler. Mm. You had all these people sort of waiting to see which way it worked out and then making a decision. Now, the, because it worked out this way, they'll all be now trying to, you know, stress to Putin how their undying loyalty. But Putin will have this nightmare of thinking, well, there's a lot of people who were perfectly prepared to see this unfold. Mm. So
3: I think what's really good that Putin was not paranoid at all to begin with. <laughs> yes. so I made so,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's <laughs> calm, calm about these sorts mm. of things, yeah. I mean, as you say, you wouldn't
1: be putting money on uh, Prigozhin reaching a ripe old age. But in the short term, it does look remarkably lenient of Putin. And Putin is not known either for his leniency or being
2: want- or wanting to be-, to be thought of as lenient. No, that's true. But then perhaps also that the fact that he's in Belarus. So he's, you know, it's a strange kind of exile because that's basically a client state. So it seems that Putin didn't want a big sort of bloodbath on Russian territory. And, 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 you know, they'd got fairly close to Moscow. So it would have been like a sort of battle unfolding in the Surrey hills. You know, hmm. it's bad, bad for the, bad for business. Um, and so I think I, I wonder whether he's he's let him go to Belarus because ultimately he feels he's got basically complete control of him there. But it's it's less hassle than than having that sort of, you know, that that big battle near Moscow.
3: Do we know if Ukraine has benefited at all from the chaos? How how do they feel about what's going on? Presumably, it's good that Russia seems weakened, but also more da- it's probably more dangerous to face a more unpredictable enemy, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, th- th- there are some theories that perhaps Ukraine was behind this in some way. So Prigozhin was known to have been... Um, in some kind of connectivity with the head of Ukraine's military intelligence, this guy called General Budanov, who is a brilliant uh, sort of winder-upper of, of Russians. And, and and so, you know, I, I don't think it's very likely, but it's, you can't rule out the idea that the Ukrainians had a hand in the whole whole coup. But actually, it doesn't seem to have changed the situation on the ground very much because the Wagner troops had all re- retreated from the front line anyway because of this sort of unfolding disagreement. Uh, And if you look at the situation on the ground, Ukrainians' uh, offensive is ongoing. It's slow going. uh, They're making sort of grinding out progress. So I I don't think... It's clear that they, there's an immediate benefit, but clearly, um, when you've got the, the leadership of Russia all sort of wondering whether they're all about to um, sort of rise up against one another, it can't be good. Can't be good for the Russians. Um, I think. I think that you know the, the tragic strike on the restaurant in Kramatorsk, which happened uh, last night, um, is is a reminder that Russia continues to you know carry on its war against Ukrainians.
3: Mm. I, mean, I did really enjoy what was it the video of that uh, Ukrainian general watching something on an iPad, presumably the news about Prigozhin eating a massive <laughs> bag of popcorn. Is like, <laughs> they are just so good at social media, just also, so relentlessly good. As yeah. I was
1: just saying, like every time anything bad happens to, in Russia or to the Russian army, the Ukrainians pop up and go, "Yeah, we did that. We did that <laughs> yeah. we wanna, you
2: know, that
3: was us." <laughs> yeah,
2: and, and that's the thing that you you get to a stage now where where almost anything can happen. And Ukrainians can hint that they might have done it, and no one's <laughs> no one's quite sure.
3: You know, I genuinely um, love the idea. of, Putin tripping and falling down the stairs, and yeah, Zelensky yeah. going, "Well, I'm not not saying." <laughs> 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 Wagner was supposed to provide both a military example on how to fight to the regular Russian army and a threat in case the regular soldiers started to waver. Wagner fighters were reportedly brutal against the regular army, beating and robbing them. What happens now that Putin has lost his enforcers?
2: Well, there are there are other mercenary. Um mercenary units oh, so on the BBC all the <laughs> mercenaries are available yes, exactly <laughs> <laughs> so I mean this is the, the sort of the endless cynicism of the Russian elite um, Shoigu who of course Minister of Defence the big target of Prigozhin's ire he has a mercenary company too and they've just deployed uh, so the two mercenary companies that have just deployed to, to, the, to, to the to the war front are the, the Shoigu mercenary company and the Gazprom mercenary Gazprom? company Gazprom? Yes. what
1: are they that sponsor the fucking Champions League? Well, you
2: know. <laughs> um and so what? I mean well you know Prigogine started out as a caterer. We were talking earlier, it's just like Sodexo you know. So I, I think um <laughs>
3: You know, call me a bleeding heart liberal here but i kind of feel like if you're in government you can't just have mercenaries as well oh my god matt hancock definitely should have uh, had mercenaries
2: it it's just kind of eddie stobart fighting a war for you <laughs> or, or you know, peter green ambient chilled foods yeah oh um I, what, so, yeah. yes i mean i suppose uh, well you know this is this is the the weird sort of cynicism of the modern age isn't it that you had I mean, during our pandemic, which was, after all, was probably our biggest national crisis in recent years, you had all kinds of people in and around government coining it from PPE. Um, so I don't see why the Russians shouldn't be able to coin it from from <laughs> deploying mercenaries. <Clock> masks, <laughs> oh <my> God, genocide, <laughs> same thing, really. So it, it's a national crisis, time Jesus to make money. Who would be the
3: funniest MP to have mercenaries? I'm thinking like West treating just one day, just rising up. Yeah, it, I'll have a thing. This will be my thing for the next week or so. Which MP would be the funniest as the head of a well, just Well, I, unit? I'd be
1: glad
2: that Doris is going, that's all I'm <laughs> oh saying. Oh,
3: my God. She would make such a good military leader. All, all, of this, all of this <laughs> yes. um,
2: reminds me of a conversation I once had with an Iraqi MP who was from the equivalent of the liberal democrats in iraq and and you won't be surprised to learn quite a small party and um but but we were chatting away and he was talking about how difficult it is running a, running a political party and he then said yeah and of course we've got the militia as well and i was like what and he said well all all political parties in iraq have an armed militia and I, but you're like the Liberal Democrats. Yeah, we still have an armed militia. So I suppose it's so they like. Wear that. <laughs> yeah. so they wear sandals. I could say that they have
1: beards, but of course everybody has beards. Well, yeah, right? no, yeah. I, I think just they were. They, they yeah.
2: had Kalashnikovs. Oh, They're a proper militia. So yes. I suppose it's just, you know, e- each country has its own political dynamic. So
3: I will just retell my jokes. I'm really pleased with it. I hummus. I feel like both Liberal Democrats and Arabs, the one thing they have in common. <laughs>
1: Rachel this is one of the weird scenarios when uh, nobody in the news media knows anything more than what they can see on Sky News it no. was a, it was a huge kind of uh, projection and prognostication <laughs> festival wasn't it <laughs> what was it what was it like inside the new states or WhatsApp group were you going like we got to scrap the cover <laughs> three times today
4: um but, well basically we were all just we were all WhatsApping each other kind of throughout the weekend watching it uh, you know flare up and then you know mm. um calm back down but um yeah i mean you'd basically just Kind of trying to judge how you navigate the next few days via Twitter, and kind of not knowing quite what bit to trust. You're know, like, you know, mm. you know you have to, you're looking at like a screenshot of flight radar, thinking, has Putin now like left Moscow? Yeah. Like, is that the big moment? Is that, that fake was... Putin? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, what, what do you? Yeah, it's kind of hard to kind of navigate how you cover such a moment like that when there's no such thing as really a free press in in Russia that you can yeah. kind of anchor your you know, thinking about what is a moment in. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I know we've been a bit flippant over the past couple of minutes, but it's one of the few things in this whole awful episode where you kind of think this is something that can actually make us a little bit happy, the two sides of the biggest bastards in the world going at each other, however briefly.
4: Yeah, and it was kind of timed at the same time as all those sort of brilliant acts were playing at Glastonbury. You're like, oh, this is kind of, (laughs) this feels like a good weekend.
1: (laughs) Yes, Arthur, um, Putin says Wagner forces are not going to be withdrawn from Africa, Mm. where Russia uh, is obviously expanding its influence. If they start definitively losing this war, uh, what's going to happen in places like, you know, Mali and the Central African Republic who rely on Wagner troops to put down rebellions and where Wagner is kind of integrating itself into the state?
2: Yeah, I I don't think there will be very much change. So, I mean, Mm. Wagner is a huge element now of Russia's foreign policy, basically, and and it Drives a lot of kind of economic and commercial decisions you know gold mines and things like that um, in 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 West Africa. I think Russia can lose a war in Ukraine and still you know run um, these weird sort of mercenary armies uh, across across that part of africa and and let 's not forget that the Wagner moved into a space that had been evacuated by European. Mm. powers, you know, the the French notably, but actually also Britain, Germany, a lot of European countries had quite large military deployments uh, in Mali and Niger and, and, and that in the Sahel region. And basically uh, we we lost the sort of desire to carry on. And and we, we left the space open and, and and Wagner moved in. And of course their, their methodology is very different. Um, but it it can be quite attractive if you are a sort of would-be authoritarian of of a very poor African country to have this group of people who do nasty things for you. So they've been given a choice, the Wagner troops, sign a contract with the Russian Ministry of Defence
1: or move to Belarus with Prigozhin. It's a tough one, isn't it? It's a tough one, but also (laughs) is it a good idea to sort of like bottle up a very resentful, angry
2: private army in a nearby client state? i imagine that there's quite a lot of work being sort of done at the moment to figure out how you, how you manage the ones that go to belarus but i i you know the the weird thing with wagner is that there's a small number of of kind of former elite soldiers who've become mercenaries, which is your sort of traditional, mm-hmm. you know, your old school mercenary was a South African special forces. It's the wild geese, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, right. Whereas clearly in, in Bakhmut, what you were seeing were these convicts, most of whom had no military training at all, who were just being used as as sort of machine gun fodder. And um, I don't suppose those people have any particular inclination to, to, to go off to Belarus in, because there's no obvious you know, means of livelihood there. Um, So I I think that that probably the numbers of people who end up there will be very small. On
1: Doomsday Watch, your uh, excellent podcast, Um, Mike Martin, who was one of uh, your go-to military experts, said he didn't believe Putin would be president in six months' time. Firstly, what do you think? And secondly, you know... Has this kind of shaken the Russian public's confidence in him? Because before we started recording, you were actually saying you think Putin
2: weirdly has come out of this rather well. Yeah, I think he's come out better than you'd think. So, you know, as as Rachel was talking about, there was, there was the plane taking off and you thought, is that Putin escaping? And and we certainly don't think that now. And he gave a whole series of big speeches in Moscow over the last sort of 48, 72 hours. He's reasserted his authority. Um, he he's playing this, a combination of sort of, you know, we need to be tough, we've got to deal with traitors, but also actually by not having a bloodbath, you know, sometimes by, you know, that by showing a little bit of magnanimity that, you know, the emperor shows his his sort of human side. But clearly, it's, if someone can start a mutiny, an armed uprising, and then get away with it, that doesn't suggest that your country is particularly well organised. So I I, I, I wouldn't want to put a date on it, but I think this is very... This, this will be seen as one of the moments when Putin's authority was undermined still further. And, of course, it's been undermined steadily since the failure of, of the Ukraine invasion, basically. We've just seen a private army march to within 100 miles of Moscow. Roughly. Yeah. What
1: does it say about internal security and the kind of robustness of Russia's own internal defense? Because if a, if a, surely if Wagner can, walk, can make it 100 miles into Russia, the Ukrainian army could if it wanted to.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, the difference is that no one no one was trying to fight them. Uh, now, there are different theories about why is that. Uh, one is that basically, you know, Russian military is extremely hierarchical and there were no orders coming down. But that in itself is interesting because of what that tells us, it's going back to this thing of the sort of Stauffenberg analogy that all the Russian military leadership were waiting to see what happened before they decided, you know, what to do. Uh, so it wasn't that they that they had to kind of invade their way there. You know, if it was a Ukrainian army, they'd have to fight for every square foot of territory. Um, I think it's more that Russia got paralysed, you know, within decision. Hmm. Clearly, Putin wasn't making decisions. No one else was making decisions. There's evidence that this guy Surovikin and maybe others were in coordination in some way. Uh, So I don't think it shows us that it's militarily weak in the conventional sense, but it shows us that the, the leadership is is in this state of, of sort of total paranoia. And it, not just Putin, but everyone at that top level waiting to see, you know, what happens, who, who moves next, what happens next. And I guess that's the thing. The difference between a coup and a war is that the coup is about a kind of almost like a vibe. Do people believe in it? Whereas a war, you've got to win a battle. And, yeah. and I think that that's what was happening. It was a coup, not a war. So basically, it's the death of Stalin. Is he, is he dead yet? I don't know. What do you think? Yes, that's a, again, but yeah. I think that's what it is, and 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 I suppose these totalitarian systems build these weird sort of psychological kind of dysfunctions.
1: Time for a question from one of our Patreon backers in the section we call "But your emails," uh, Caroline Lavelle says. I love your shows in a sadly masochistic way. I was just listening to an interview with Emmanuel Macron on Farid Zakaria's show. I was struck by the difference between his interview style and that of Rishi Sunak. Uh, I wonder if you have any comments on how politicians around the world speak to their respective populations and if there are any others that also treat their people as if their mental level was around that necessary for understanding a Thomas the Tank Engine story. So, how politicians talk to their people. Marie, you have thoughts on this?
3: Uh, I do, in that... So I think it's maybe slightly unfair to take Macron as an example of French politicians, because I do remember when he came on the scene in 2017, one of the reasons I think why he did so well and people who wouldn't have maybe traditionally liked him liked him is that he answered questions, unlike the other French politicians running to be president. I think he was, he really, really stood out by, again, kind of giving full and frank answers to staff, talking to journalists, talking to people in the street, kind of talking to everyone all the time, really. So I think that... It's not. Yeah. My only point would be to say that it would be unfair, I think, to compare all British politicians to very specifically Macron, who even in, in a French context is, I think, quite different from mm. uh, other politicians there.
1: Arthur, you're probably the best travelled person in this room, having dealt with politicians on both hemispheres and all over the place. Are we worse for sort of talking down? Or are our politicians worse for talking down to people? or Are we just better at doing politics?
2: I think yeah you know it's easy to criticize the british media and here I am in a room full of journalists so I well, won't do that um I think that you know the british media are good at holding politicians to account in a very kind of punchy way and you see it often when when our leaders are overseas and there's this sort of slightly respectful tone that is often taken with the head of state of of you know of whatever you know uh, another country, and 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 our prime minister is is being given a hard time so often about some quite narrow domestic issue. And you have that thing where they say where well, the prime minister gets tetchy, and it could be any prime minister. Saying, Does anyone want to ask us about you know the summit meeting we're here, and they want to sort of talk about big picture global affairs, and actually it's you know the question is has Thames Water gone bankrupt or something? Um, so I think I think there is that, but then I I, I also think that um, that there does appear sometimes to be a kind of a lack of ability in this country to to raise a debate uh, above above the really sort of quotidian level. Oh. Um, but you know m- maybe our politics, you know the, the structures of our politics play into that, I guess. Oh.
3: Oh, um, as one of the journalists in the room, I'm more than happy to say that one of the problems is obviously that if a senior politician uses a word of more than about three syllables, the sun would call them a Ponce. <laughs>
1: We've reached the end of the show, which is where we like to look at some of the stories that might have gone under the radar this week. What should we have been looking at that perhaps we weren't? Marie.
3: Um, well, so I've not seen tons of it in the British press, but uh, a few days ago, uh, 17-year-old Nel, uh, a teenage boy, was killed by the police in Nanterre in France. Um and, yeah, I mean, it's just been a really messy, horrible story where at the beginning the police said, oh, well, you know, he was actually actively threatening the, the officers and that's why they shot him. And then actually a video came out and he was not threatening them at all. Um, so, yeah, so it's kind of... Uh relentlessly made the headlines but also there's a kind of wider context of in 2017 the law changed and it allowed uh, police officers to start using their firearms for a, a wider kind of range of reasons and you'll be shocked and astounded to hear that that's resulted in the police killing way more people so just in the last year on average one person a month has been killed by the police and in quite a lot of cases it's really not clear-cut that that person was actually a danger to the extent that they needed to be killed so yes um police brutality is uh, in France is kind of of the massive thing happening, yeah, just over the channel that mm. people I think should look at
1: a bit. Arthur, what's your under the radar for this
2: week? Um, yeah, so last week I attended a conference which was all about the Windrush scandal, and of course it coincided with the seventy fifth anniversary, which was last Thursday, so called Windrush Day. And and there's something about this that really gets me because uh, on one level it's great that in this country we celebrate the, the arrival of a particular generation of immigrants. Uh, and the transformational effect they've had on our society, cultural and so on. Um, but at the same time, you know, the most hideous act of kind of uh, state oppression um, took place uh, in, in the context of the Windrush Candle, people being arrested, uh, people being deported, some people dying without ever getting any redress. And the, the, the bit that's under the radar is the fact that the compensation scheme still is, has completely failed to do what it's supposed to do. Loads of people are still trying to get their compensation. You basically need a lawyer. I mean, the whole thing about the Windrush scandal was the kind of people who didn't have access to things like lawyers uh, got caught up in it. You need a lawyer to have any chance of getting your compensation. And meanwhile, Suella Braverman has closed down various units in the Home Office um, that are tasked with, with kind of dealing with the aftermath of this and saying things like, we need to move on. I would have thought that if, if you were a, a law abiding resident of this country and you were arrested and deported to somewhere you barely knew, you probably don't feel much like moving on. And, and I think there's something about the sort of cutification, if I can use that word, of the Windrush generation and the sort of overlap with Paddington and all this sort of stuff, which on one level you can say, well, it's charming and it's nice that we, 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 we celebrate that. But I sort of almost think it's a way in which our society is trying to avoid the much mm. darker thing that happened there. Mm. Rachel, what's uh, under the radar this week for you?
4: Um, Sarah McBride, she is the most senior elected official in the U.S. who is openly trans. Mm-hmm. Um, she is going to run um, to, to to run for Congress, basically in Delaware. And um, it's, it strikes me as the story because it, it under, underlines just how far behind our politics are, despite the fact we we constantly. Um, are discussing trans people, what rights they should and shouldn't have. And, and we just so rarely hear from anyone who actually is trans. Um, and trans voices are never really in there. So I think it's kind of just an interesting story that makes makes me reflect on our politics. And I'm not aware or can think of um, a, a candidate who's been selected in a winnable seat who's who's yeah. trans either.
1: Tiny bit of good news in the United States. The Supreme Court has struck down a particular legal theory that would have given state legislatures the power to set the rules of federal elections. It's called the independent state legislature theory, and it meant that they would have been able to gerrymander the districts, prevent legal challenges and override popular votes, very much in the mould of which we saw Donald Trump urging Uh, local officials to do in the last presidential election Uh, the court struck this theory down six to three and only the three conservative justices clarence thomas samuel alito and neil gorsuch dissented and this means that republicans will have less power to warp federal elections or push the idea that if we don't win then it was a fix and that is a bit of good news for once from the supreme court of all places (laughs) so that's good And that is the end of the podcast Thank you to Arthur Snell Thanks for having me Thank you to Marie LeConte Thank you And thank you to special guest Rachel Weymouth. Thanks Patreon people Stay tuned for the extra bit After Demon is a Monster By Corner Shop And of course The traditional thank yous To our patient army Of generous supporters You too could join them And get the podcast early Without ads Plus lots more If you search Oh God What Now Patreon To find out how to sign up Thanks for listening We'll see you next time
3: Hello and many thanks for supporting us to Stevie Mack, Johnny Tedds
2: and George Schwartz. Best wishes and thanks for your generosity to Dave Petley, Marina Strinkowski and Steph Thorpe. And finally, many thanks and all the best from me too, Peter Austin,
1: Aidan Bregonier and Owen O'Mahony. We'll see you next time. Oh God What
2: Now is presented by Podmasters group editor Andrew Harrison, with Marie LeConte and Arthur Snell. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Socials by Jess Harpin. Oh God What Now is a Podmasters production.
1: Welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. Now, never let it be said that we ignore the local press. This week, for some reason, the British press ate up the story of an OAP complaining that young people have it too easy in our new, tough economic times. All across the titles of the Reach Stable, Devon resident Brian Meek, aged 76, said he and his wife Rosemary, aged 70, put in extra hours at weekends and evenings when interest rates rose in the 1970s. We just did whatever we had to do so we could keep paying our mortgage, he said. You've never had it so good. We had it a lot worse than it is now. People need to stop whinging about it. The story spread to Wales Online, Plymouth Live, and finally The Express. So why have so many digital column inches been dedicated to what is not much more than an average male online comment? Marie Lacan? why? (laughs)
3: <laughs> That's just a very all-purpose question, isn't yeah. it? Um, no, well, I think so, I did have a look at it. So if you look at the credit for the pictures, they're from SWNS, which is a news agency. So what they do is they kind of, I mean, they're basically just journalists. So they interview people, take pictures, etc. and then newspapers and media organizations subscribe to them and if it, mm. they effectively take the stories, maybe add a couple of bits if they want to or not. So I think what happened here is the agency found this bloke for some reason and were like, okay, and they sent it around to the newsroom saying, We've got this story. We've got the quotes. We've got the pictures. If you look at all the stories, they're all using the exact same pictures, and you know you can use them for free with your subscription. And I think papers, you know, journalists are overworked and underpaid, and that was just there, and that was guaranteed to get some rage clicks. So I think that that is why. Um, but the thing is, though, it's
1: is it the story that could, not to knock Brian, but he's just some guy. He's not a local <laughs> councillor. He's not a. He hasn't got a business. He doesn't represent anybody but himself, and that's fine. But we don't, it's like, how is it news? Exactly.
4: I think it's also like how it's been used. It strikes me as like something that uh, a news agency would send out for use with a bigger feature on the mortgages. It's like a Vox Pop, Uh, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's like a part of a Vox Pop representing like one particular view. It's a
3: box, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's a box that
4: you'd put with, you know, one large feature on saying, oh God, Mm. no one can pay their mortgages. It's bloody, bloody terrible. And then you have to present a few alternative views. And it's been used as a standalone story and it's been seized on because it confirms what many, many people <laughs> think is the problem mm-hmm. when, when they have, you know, potentially own
2: their own homes. He'll it, be presenting <laughs> on GB News by next week. Well, right? yeah, yeah. well he certainly, but, you know, he,
1: he seems like the kind of guy who'd watch GB News. Or maybe, that, maybe maybe, I make unfair to him, maybe he doesn't. But it's kind of, it does seem to be we've reached a certain kind of point in the rage loop where we're just like, the, the main story is just anybody, just person in the street, you know, without Credentials.
3: But that happens a lot already with social media. Like every single story that's oh, people took to Twitter.
1: YouTube, that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like to hear it in its entirety and get a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early and a whole load of extras too, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon. It costs as little as £3 a month and you'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast Oh God What Else every Monday morning to just to tide you over. Thanks for listening.